our first of seven words from Jesus. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Have you ever wondered? Have you ever had the question of what you would have done if you had walked those same days, those same places as Jesus 2,000 years ago, as you walked from village to village in Galilee, would you have waved palm fronds on Palm Sunday as he entered Jerusalem? Would you have gone to hear him preach? Would you have celebrated his arrival as the Messiah? Or would you have called him a blasphemer, a heretic, a Messiah wannabe with no place in your spiritual repertoire? Would you have chanted, crucify him, and believed that was the only answer for the problem that he had brought upon the people of Israel? Of course, we'll never know. The truth is, in some ways, it doesn't really matter, does it? We all, as sinners, have gone astray. And in our darkest moments, we are in need of a God who forgives no matter what. We are in need of a Messiah who loves not what we have done for us, but for who we are as his children. We are in need of a Messiah who says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The earliest artistic depiction of Jesus Christ is a second century piece of graffiti scratched into a Roman wall, a wall of plaster. The graffiti depicts a soldier offering homage to Christ. He is depicted with the head of a donkey. There is an inscription underneath which reads, Alex Amanos worships his God. The intention of the artist was to mock both Christ and those who claim him. In the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, both criminals who are crucified beside Jesus mock him together. Luke's Gospel alone records the strange change of heart that one of the criminals experiences. He begins, in the midst of torture, to recognize Jesus not as a fool, but as an unfortunate innocent, and then pleads not to be forgiven. After all, it's too late for that, but simply to be remembered. Jesus responds with more than what he was asked for. He says to the turncoat mobster, today you shall be with me in paradise. 
It's a terribly unjust statement to think that a man who, based on his own admission, was rightfully executed according to the law of the state, that he should be let off the hook with such ease. A crucified con man is not a candidate for heaven. After all, he cannot fully repent and alter his life's direction. He is, after all, nailed into place. He cannot write apology letters to those whom he's wrong. His hands are currently occupied. And he cannot give back what he's stolen. He's been stripped of everything he's taken. Time is up. Amendment is impossible. And Jesus says to a thug, I will see you soon. Today you will be with me in paradise. People have long said that religion is the last refuge for the scoundrel. That the slimiest individuals conveniently discover God in the 11th hour when their deeds catch up with them. And yet, do we not have a voice echoing from deep within which pleads for the same sort of unjust treatment? Which says, when the cards are down, I hope God takes the identical approach with me. For those of us who are bowed bad to the bone, the self-effacing line from William Cooper's hymn is not an offense, but the very words of liberation. The dying thief rejoiced to see the fountain in his day, and there have I, though vile as he, washed all my sins away. The mocked, dying Christ has a new friend and a new thug laden with only mistakes and regrets plods into paradise. If such a thing is true, perhaps there is hope for Alexamenos and a first century graffiti artist and a crucified con man and those who gather to hear about them. Today, you will be with me in paradise. If such a saying is true, then maybe there is something to this word grace after all. Several years ago, I was at the bedside of a dying man named Bob with my friend, a pastor named Pete. And we'd been visiting with Bob for some time as he was ill and close to death. And one of the things that was on Bob's mind continually was what was going to happen to his dear Eleanor. What was going to happen to his wife when he died? And at his bedside, on his deathbed, my friend Pete leaned over and whispered in his ear, it's okay, Bob. You can go. Eleanor's going to be okay. You can go. And Bob died shortly thereafter. It's a natural thing. It's a very human thing. At the moment of death, your death or someone else's, to be concerned about your loved ones. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her 
to his own home. Jesus looks out at his mother in these moments before his death and he says, what's going to happen to my mother? It's a very human reaction, a very compassionate reaction. When I look at this story, I wonder, uh, where's Joseph? Where's, this, where's Jesus' father? We don't know. Maybe he's dead. Maybe. Maybe he, like Jesus' brothers, reject Jesus as the Messiah and he couldn't take the pressure and he left. Maybe he abandoned Mary. We, we don't know. But she's alone there with a few other women and the disciple John. And what about this brave, brave Mary? A woman, the mother of this controversial figure, vulnerable, a husband apparently nowhere in sight. And yet it's Mary and these women that show us how to have faith when things look really grim. But this tells us something more about Jesus. He's a human, fully human. Human enough that he's really concerned about what's going to happen to his mother. And he entrusts her to his disciple, John. But Jesus is more than merely human. He is the incarnate Son of God. He is the God-man. And while as the man sees his mother in front of him, as the incarnate Son of God, he looks out into the future and he's concerned by the rest of his family, for the rest of his family, for the rest of his flock. He's concerned for you and for me. In Jesus' high priestly prayer, he actually prays for you and me. In his darkest hour on the cross, he sees his mother and he is concerned for her. But in the dark hours leading up to his torment and torture, he prays for you and for me. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them with truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus, in the midst of this darkness, at a moment when you and I would only be thinking about ourselves... Jesus is thinking about you and me because he's a man who had a mother, but he's the incarnate son of God who saw the future 
and saw what our lives would be like and saw what it would be like to follow him. And on this night, this day, Jesus prayed for you. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If we're honest with ourselves, these words are uncomfortable. And isn't it, if not ironic, at least paradoxical to say that the Messiah, who John 1 describes as the light of the world, the light that was the life of all people, as he approaches his own death, is in darkness. And I'm not saying darkness metaphorically. It says in the scripture that darkness came over the land from the sixth to the ninth hour, from approximately noon to 3 p.m. As Jesus experiences the very worst of humanity, violence, twisted power, Control by the religious and civic leaders, mockery by the crowds. The scene is made even more poignant by the literal darkness that has descended upon the people. This abandonment, betrayal, and the pain of the cross reach their climax as Jesus cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me here alone, even from your presence, the very presence that I have depended upon every single day of my earthly ministry? And yet, even in the very darkest moments of Jesus' life, even in his anguish, he does not reject God. He turns to God by saying, my God, right? There is still faith in the midst of the darkest moments of Jesus' earthly ministry. As sin is taken upon him and as he is separated from the Father for perhaps the very first time, for, for the very first time. He still has faith. A faith that we are called to replicate in our own lives. Not because we can do it on our own, but because his Holy Spirit, his paraclete, his comforter will come to us in due time. It is difficult for us to consider our Messiah as someone who is separated from God. And yet, is there not comfort? Is there not solace in this truth that when we turn to our God in our own suffering, and we want to say, God, you do not understand, he can say, yes, I do. I was rejected. I was scorned. I was nailed on a cross. I know what it is like to experience 
human suffering. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. These words were said to fulfill what is referenced in Psalm 69. They gave me poison for food and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Imagine for a moment that you are there. You are a witness to this torture, and perhaps you feel pity for the battered and bloody man hanging from the cross. He cries for drink, and you think, yes, yes, give him water to drink. You holy women standing there, give him something to drink. But no, that isn't what happens. Consider the accursed nature of the bystanders. You and I may have a hundred enemies and may have suffered terribly at their hands. But when we see them suffering severely or even dying, we tend to lose our hostility toward them. We tend to have pity. Our anger is tamed. But not so the enemies of our Lord. They continued in their mockery, perhaps even increasing it. They had a bucket, and in it was this sour wine vinegar, something that was kept for all dying criminals. Not not a pleasant drink, not something to truly quench thirst, but something to give the form of refreshment with none of its healing properties. It is a physical symbol of the bitterness of his unjust suffering. It's a final mockery to dying criminals. And there is Jesus being treated as nothing more than that. A common dying criminal worthy only to be mocked. We see here more of the humanity of Jesus. The Son of God through whom all things were made, all oceans made to swell, all springs made to run, all rain made to fall. This God-man at whose feet all the waters of the earth would gladly flow is thirsty. There is nothing common about this criminal. In these simple words, I thirst, we see the human body of the eternal son experiencing the physical agony that accompanied his anguished soul. It is here that we see how low Jesus has made himself. The God of all creation is asking for just a little sympathy, just a little kindness, just a little comfort, and he gets none. And it is is in this spiritual and physical torment, not short and not sweet, that we can receive the sweetness of redemption Forgiveness, mercy, and grace sprinkled upon us as the blood of the Passover lamb was sprinkled upon the repentant with the branch of the hyssop. Jesus said, It is finished. 
But what exactly? What well, was finished? He never told us. He had neither the time nor the breath to give an informative statement on the subject. He simply said, it is finished. So was this an admission of defeat or a declaration of victory? It is finished. These may in fact be the navy blue words of Tearsodden loss. After all, these syllables pour from the bruised and bloodied lips of a man who is spiked into a wooden throne. His compiled losses are nearly impossible to calculate. His inspired sermons were not heeded. His example of compassion was not mirrored. His miracles were disregarded. His enemies remained steel-faced and unconvinced. His choristers from Palm Sunday lost their song. His terror-stricken disciples hid in basements. The world did not change for the better, and the ever-present Father was strangely now lip-locked. Jesus runs out of time, stamina, and air, suffocating in blood. Defeat. It is finished. And yet these dark words may glow with victory. Jesus knew long before this tragic point that the cross was coming for him. He also knew that the cross would involve more than bare martyrdom. It would make history and histories. He himself taught this years prior. The Son of Man will give his life as a ransom for many. The cross, he knew, would be the currency paid for the moral insolvency of the human race. Substitution, the innocent offered for the guilty, was his goal. And now it is finished. The leaden suitcase of sin and performance with which we live a suitcase that we wearily shuffle from one aching hand to the other is taken out of our fists and placed into the grasping hands of the king of the cross. God has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Ransom paid, divine memory erased, amnesty granted. It is finished. Victory. It is finished. Perhaps these are words of both teary defeat and glowing victory at the same time. Certainly, these words have reset the needle on the record of history. The woolen veil will soon tear. The aching earth will soon quake. The tranquil graves will soon crack. A sword day, a red day, ere the sun rises. It is finished. Father, into your hands I commend 
Spirit. Jesus has come to the very end of his earthly life. He, unlike us, has stayed faithful through all circumstances. He faced temptation in the wilderness. The spiritual elite attacked him. He was scorned, mocked, ridiculed, and put on a cross. But he has run the race. And he has run it, you might say, unwaveringly. His obedience has come to a climax on the cross as he dies a criminal's death. The Romans have seemingly stripped him of everything he could have as a human being. His health, his status, his reputation, all of it seemingly nailed to a cross. The one thing that they could not take away from him was his will, a will that he shared with the Father. And that will is what put him on this cross. And so as he comes to the very end of his sacrifice, he can commit his spirit to his Father's loving hands, knowing that he has been a good and faithful servant. And that soon enough, this morning will turn to joy.